All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, written by Dr. Luke, one of the early followers of Jesus. We have just finished looking at Jesus' famous Sermon on the Plain, and now we're moving forward in his ministry as he heads to the town of Capernaum. And we're going to uh, look at an interesting interaction he had here today with a man of amazing faith. Speaking of amazing faith, have you ever met somebody who inspired you with their faith? Somebody who was really just an encouragement to you by their, uh, the way they trusted in the Lord, by the way they walked in faith, their boldness for the Lord? I want, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine this morning who is a great example to me of amazing faith. Uh, the couple you see on the screen with me here are uh, Doug and Margie Nichols. And uh, this picture was taken just this last week, and I was speaking out in Seattle at an apologetics conference, and they surprised me. They showed up at the conference to say hi, and I hadn't seen them in years, but uh, it was a real special treat. Our family, when I was a kid growing up, we served as missionaries in the Philippines for a few years. And uh, back in the mid-'80s, uh, we served with uh, Doug's organization at the time, Action International Ministries. He was the director of Action International Ministries, and uh, for basically most of his life, he and his wife have served uh, street kids all over the world, kids who are homeless, who have no families. Uh, they live in the slums and the garbage dumps. And uh, his ministry works with uh, bringing hope to these kids and trying to get them off the streets, get them educated, get them into a future. But, uh, but most significantly, sharing the love of Jesus with them. And so uh, these guys have always been an inspiration to me since the time I was a, a young guy. But uh, I want to share a story with you that I think is really an incredible story of faith. You see, 10 years ago when Doug was 61 years old, he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And the doctors told him that he had maybe six months to live. They performed a colonectomy. They removed his colon and told Doug, we'll do the best we can to take care of you, but realistically, six months may be all you have. Well, Doug, being the man of faith that he is, he said, you know what, I have, if I have six months left to live, I'm going to live that six months living for the Lord. And so Doug moved to Rwanda, Africa, to work with the children who had been orphaned through the, the terrible Holocaust that had taken place there in Rwanda this past decade. And he spent the next six months loving these kids, serving the kids of Rwanda. And six months went by, and he called his doctor back in Seattle, and he said, Hey, doc, guess what? I'm still here. <laughs> Doug went on to serve in Rwanda for another year, and obviously he's still with us today, 10 years later. In fact, Doug has started a new Christian mission organization called Commission to Every Nation, and uh, has about 100 missionaries serving in his organization all over the world today. What an incredible man of faith. You know, I, mean, I think about that, right? I mean, if, if I'm given six months left to live, would I have the faith to say, you know what, Lord, if I got six months, I'm going to live it for Jesus. I'm going to go to the, the worst hellhole on earth to serve the Lord. What an incredible example of faith. Amazing faith. Yeah, I think that's what <laughs> I'll tell my buddy we all clap for him. He'll get a kick out of that. But I share this story with us this morning because we are going to encounter a man in our passage in Luke chapter 7 today who also had an amazing faith. And we can learn a lot from this individual's faith. It's a very brief encounter, but 
What's interesting about this encounter in Luke chapter 7 is that this is only one of two places in all four Gospels where we are told that Jesus was amazed. Jesus was amazed. The first is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, where Jesus is amazed by the lack of faith he found in his hometown of Nazareth. But the second time we find Jesus stopping and expressing amazement is here in Luke chapter 7, when he encounters the faith of the man that we're going to read about today. We're told that Jesus was amazed by his faith. Now here's the deal, friends. When the guy who paints the sunsets and invented DNA and, 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 and knits the baby together in the mother's womb, when that guy stops and says he's amazed, I tell you what, you better stop and take notice. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to sit up in my seat a little bit more and pay attention because, because when that guy's amazed, something special is taking place. And we find here Jesus is amazed by the faith that we're going to see in our individual that we encounter. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 7 together, verses 1 through 10. And then as, after we read this passage, I want to come back and I want to sp speak on three essential qualities of an amazing faith that we see present in the life of this individual here today. When Jesus had finished saying all of this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation, and he built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. The men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. What an interesting story. A brief encounter with this Gentile soldier, centurion, who causes Jesus to stop in amazement. And I want to highlight for us three essential qualities of an amazing faith that we see in our passage here today. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but again, when, when Jesus stops in amazement from the actions, the, the beliefs, the trust of an individual, I want, to, I want to learn something from that guy. I want to seek to cultivate those same kinds of qualities in my life as well. Because you know what? More than anything else, I think all of us, our heart's desire should be, you know what, Lord, I want you to look at me and say, what an amazing faith. What an amazing faith. What a great goal for all of us to pursue. And so we need to learn from this centurion the three qualities of amazing faith that we see expressed in his life. The first of these is the quality of love. This centurion was a man who expressed the love that comes from an amazing faith. 
one of the first things we come to see about our Gentile centurion in our passage today is that he was a man who exercised love for others. And amazing faith is a faith that expresses itself in love. Now, we don't learn a lot about this Gentile centurion in, these short pass- in this short passage. We have to sort of read between the lines to discern what's going on in his life. But it becomes very clear as we study this passage that this was a man who understood God's call for us to love others. You know, when you look at our passage today, you have to ask yourself a basic question. Okay, And that simple question that we need to ask ourselves is this. What would motivate Jewish elders to help a Gentile soldier who had been tasked with enforcing the subjugation of their people to a foreign power? What would motivate Jewish elders to help a guy like this? If you're not familiar with biblical culture, biblical history, the reality is is Jews and Gentiles didn't quite hang out together, right? All right? They, They weren't exactly best of friends. In fact, the Jews did everything they could to stay as far apart from Gentiles and Gentile influence in their lives as they possibly could because to intermingle with Gentiles was to defile yourself spiritually And that was like the worst possible thing for an honorable Jewish person to do is to be defiled by interacting with a Gentile. And so much of the Old Testament Jewish law was about how Jews could purify themselves, protect themselves from having any interaction with Gentiles. But here, I mean, uh, this is remarkable. Out of all the people that you would find Jewish elders going to bat for, okay, we find them going to bat, lobbying Jesus on behalf of a Gentile. But not just any Gentile, all right? It's, it's one thing to recognize this guy's a Gentile, but he is a Gentile soldier, a centurion, who was probably in charge of enforcing the occupying powers in that area of Galilee, subjecting the Jewish people to unjust taxation, unjust oppression, right? That was his role, to subjugate the Jewish people. And yet it's this Gentile centurion that the Jews go to Jesus and plead with Jesus, help this guy. What's going on here? What's going on with this Gentile? Friends, I think the only explanation for this is that this Gentile soldier was a man of an amazing faith that expressed itself in love for others. And we see that in a couple of ways. Number one, we see that in his concern for his servant. This wasn't just any ordinary relationship, master-servant relationship. The Greek words that Luke uses here in verse 2, and timos in reference to the servant, he was precious to his master. In verse 7, Luke uses the term pas in reference to the servant. Pos means child. In other words, Luke says that this master, this centurion Gentile, looked at his servant as a precious child. In other words, he loved him greatly, and he must have treated him with incredible fairness and respect and love for the Jews to want to seek to help him in this way. But not only that, we find also the Jews, when they go to Jesus, he said, the Jews say, Jesus, look, he deserves your help. Why? Because he loves our nation and he even built our synagogue. 
Now that's unusual for a Gentile to love the nation of Israel, to love the Jewish people, to go so far as to even build their synagogue with his own money, right? What was going on here? It's very likely, friends, that what we have here is a case of a Gentile who had put his trust in the God of Israel. A Gentile who had recognized that the God of the Jews was really the one true God. This is the same thing as as like what we find in Acts chapter uh, 10 with Cornelius or Lydia in Acts chapter 16. The Bible speaks of these people as God-fearing Gentiles. They hadn't converted to Judaism, but they recognized that the God of Judaism truly was the one true God. And this Gentile centurion soldier had come to love the people of Israel had come to love the God of Israel. How do we know this? He even built their synagogue. By the way, you can go to Capernaum today and you can see the synagogue that this Gentile soldier built. It's still there. Parts of it were rebuilt in the fourth century, but the original floor is still there. The original foundation is still there. Friends, we aren't talking about made-up stories. This is real historical stuff that took place. You can see the evidence for it today. This man who loved his servant, who loved Israel, who loved the God of Israel, you can see the fruit of that to this very day, 2,000 years later, in the synagogue that he paid for. This was a man who loved others. And what's very interesting about this guy when you think about it, here was a guy who recognized the God of Israel, probably had learned quite a bit about the teachings of the God of Israel. The God of Israel in the Old Testament had laid out Uh, over 600 laws that he had asked the Jewish people to follow. 613 laws that you'll find in the first five books of Moses. But if you recall, Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest of all the laws? Out of all these 600 laws. In fact, look at Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus said, look, you can boil down all the laws, all 600 some laws in the Old Testament to these two things, love God and love others. That's what I want you to do. And what I find amazing in this story is here is a Gentile centurion soldier overseeing the subjugation of the Israelites But he had come to trust the God of Israel and he had come to do God's requirements in a way that most Jews didn't even recognize. This Gentile was loving God and loving others. And we see the fruit of that in the Jews going to bat for him. Jesus, help this guy. He deserves your help. They lobbied on his behalf. You see, this Gentile centurion Right? He had definitely evidenced love enough where the truth of Matthew 5.16 had been expressed in his life. Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What's going on in this story? The Jews had seen the evidence of a man who loved God and loved others And it forced them, it led them, it compelled them to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, help this guy. He deserves your help. Friends, this is the power of love. When people see us as Christians living out and expressing Christ-like love to ourselves and to others, right? Jesus Jesus tells us people cannot help 
but ask what's going on and ultimately want to know more about the God that we serve. Because Christian love is a radical kind of love. It's an amazing kind of love. It's, it's a love that the world around us just doesn't understand and doesn't know. But here's the thing. Is this kind of love easy? It's not easy. We need God's help every day to love this way. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts to give us the ability to love in this way. I heard a story from Pastor Erwin Lutzer who shared about a man who had come into his office for marital counseling. Pastor Lutzer said it became very apparent that he wasn't really interested in counseling. He was actually just looking for Pastor Lutzer to basically give his approval to divorce his wife. He had gone on for a number of minutes telling Pastor Lutzer all the reasons why they should get a divorce, all the reasons why his wife had let him down, all the reasons why their marriage wasn't working out. And Pastor Lutzer said, look at here, if, if you're coming to me seeking my approval for your divorce, I'm not going to give it to you. But, but, but let me do this. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Pastor Lutzer opened up his Bible and he said, you know, the Bible tells us that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Even going so far as laying down your life for her, just as Christ laid down his life for the church. Can you love your wife like that? Oh, pastor, that's, that's too hard. I, I, that's too high a bar. I just can't love like that. So Pastor Lutzer said, well, let's look at another passage. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. You think you could love your wife like you love your neighbor? Oh, pastor, that, that's just too hard. I, I don't think I could love her like that. Okay, well, let's look at another passage. Jesus says, love your enemies. Why don't you start there? We laugh at that, friends, but the reality is, is this is what Christian love compels us to do. Love others, love your neighbor, love your enemies. Christian love is a radical kind of love. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's a never-ending, never-giving-up kind of love. Look what the Apostle Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Friends, this is why Christian love has literally transformed human history. When Christians live out this radical love in the power of the Holy Spirit, God has used Christ-like love to literally change history. Back in the early centuries of the Christian church, one of the diseases that caused many people uh, incredible suffering was the disease known as leprosy. Today we call it Hansen's disease. Leprosy causes nerve damage where the tips of your fingers and toes will fall off. The tips of your nose and your ears will begin to fall off. You'll develop ulcerous sores, ugly, terrible sores all over your body. And in the early centuries of the church, after Christ, many people with leprosy were basically doomed to a life lived, lived as outcasts from society with no hope, no one to take care of them, no community to support them. 
In the fourth century, though, there was a church father named Basil. We know him today as Basil the Great. And Basil had an idea. Basil said, what if the church builds a place to love and care for lepers? To love and care for these people as Christ commands us to love and care for people. Basil had a brother named Gregory of Nyssa who was also a church father. He preached a sermon in the early 4th century where he said this, he's, in arguing that the church should seek to raise money to take care to take care of these lepers, Gregory said, lepers have been made in the image of God in the same way you and I have. And perhaps they, envis- they, they, and perhaps they preserve that image even better than we. Let us take care of Christ while there's still time. Let us minister to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us, let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honor. You see, it was the church who stood up and said, we need to love these lepers. We need to care for them. We need to create a place where they can be cared for. And friends, this was the beginning of what would come to be known today as hospitals. The very first hospitals were created by Christians to care for people who the rest of culture had written off as unworthy of love, as unworthy of care. In fact, in the 4th century, there was a council called the Council of Nyssa. It was where the Nicene Creed was ratified. And at the Council of Nyssa, the early church fathers declared, whenever we build a new cathedral in any city in the world, we are always going to build a hospital next to it to care for the least of these. Because that's what Christ-like love compels us to do. That's where hospitals come from, friends. Hospitals are the direct result of Christians who understand our call to love others. Hospitals didn't come out of Buddhism. They didn't come out of Islam. They didn't come out of atheism. They came out of a biblical foundation in the love of Jesus Christ. We're called to love God and we're called to love others. And an amazing faith is a faith that expresses itself in love. Friends, why do we love as followers of Christ? Look what John tells us in 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Why do we build hospitals? Why do we love our neighbor? Why do we love with this radical love that never gives up, even when it doesn't get love in return? We love this way, friends, because Jesus first loved us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our perversion. God said, I love you so much, I'm going to come and I will give my very life to demonstrate my love for you so that we can be restored to a right relationship. That is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. But look what John says. He says, this is really interesting. John says, look, the world doesn't see God. No one's ever seen God. But you know what? When we love one another, when we love with the love that comes from an amazing faith, people will see God's love manifested in us and through us. And they'll know that there is a creator in heaven who cares about people. That's why we love as Christian friends. If you want to have an amazing faith, ask God to increase your capacity to love. And he'll begin to do an incredible work in your heart. The second quality of an amazing faith that we see in our passage today is humility. 
this centurion evidenced an incredible humility. Now, I want you to remember what took place in this passage. The Jews go to Jesus, right? And the Jews lobby on behalf of Jesus. Jesus, this guy deserves your help. Look at all he's done. He loves Israel. He's built our synagogue. This guy deserves your help. And to the Jews, friends, the centurion's deeds certainly qualified him as being worthy of the Lord's help. Not just worthy, but in fact, Jesus, he deserves your help, right? I mean, look at Jesus. If anybody deserves your help, it's this guy. Because look, at he loves his servant. He loves Israel. He even built our synagogue. I mean, Jesus, come on. If you're going to help anybody, certainly this guy deserves your help. And here's the thing. The Jewish elders, their view of a right relationship with God was very similar to how many people even still today view a right relationship with God. You see, many people today view a right relationship with God based on our external deeds. And if we do enough stuff, good works, good deeds, treat people with kindness, right? If we do enough stuff to prove our worthiness, then God will bestow us with blessings. And friends, this view, this is kind of like viewing God as like the great skee-ball machine in the sky, all right? How many, how many of you guys like playing skee-ball or have ever played skee-ball? My, my family and I, we love playing skee-ball. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, we were over at Split Rocks in Wyoming, and we were playing skee-ball. And I'll tell you what, watch out for Caleb and Addy. They, I mean, these guys shoot 500, 1,000 every time. But here's the thing. A lot of people treat God like he's the skee-ball machine in the sky. You know, if we just play the game the right way, out will flow all the goodies. But here's the thing, friends, you need to understand this. God isn't interested in making deals with you. He wants a relationship with you. And a relationship with God requires humility. It requires a recognition on our part that he is God and we are not. He is holy and just and righteous and we have fallen woefully short of who he is as our perfect holy creator God. And it's because of that fact that we need to approach God with a humble spirit. And here's the thing. The difference between the centurion and the Jewish elders was simply this. The centurion knew his own heart. The centurion knew that he was unworthy to host Jesus in his home. All that external stuff, he, that's not what it's about. He recognized that in his heart, he was a sinner. And he was unworthy to host Jesus. But he also recognized that Jesus received sinners because of his grace. And that Jesus had the power to heal his servant. And so the centurion approached Jesus in humility, acknowledging both his power and his lordship. You know, many people today fail to understand the necessity of humility in order to have an amazing faith. Many people in our world today, like the Jewish elders in our story, think an amazing faith is simply about demonstrating your worthiness by your outward deeds. But that's not how God defines an amazing faith. God looks at the heart. And here's the deal, friends. Our hearts have a problem. We are all infected with a spiritual disease called sin. And all the outward stuff, all the good works, all the good deeds, all the kindness, right? All that stuff. If there's crud in your heart that hasn't been dealt with, we're in trouble. 
Look what the Bible says about the nature of our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Isaiah 64.6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags in the eyes of a holy God. Friends, we have a major problem. I've got, I've got this lawnmower at home I've been tinkering with for the last couple months. It had been sitting in my garage for a couple years and, and it wouldn't start. And so I started doing some research and watching some YouTube videos and, and I came to figure out, well, it's probably the carburetor. The carburetor is probably clogged up with a bunch of junk. So uh, this was pretty good because I'm no mechanic, but I, I figured out how to take the carburetor out and I, and I cleaned that carburetor. I got some spray, you know, and I sprayed it down and I wiped it out. I had, you know, stuck my fingers in little openings and I'm cleaning it out as best I can. And I got this carburetor, spick and span, bright and shiny. It looked incredible. And I slapped that carburetor back on the engine, went and pulled the starter, nothing. It just sputtered. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? So I called my buddy Blake Anderson up. He's an engineer with Polaris. Some of you know Blake. He, goes, he plays drums for us occasionally. I said, Blake, I can't get this, this lawnmower started. I think I'm on the right track, but what's going on? Blake says, you know what, Jason? In your carburetor, there's all these tiny little openings that you can't get at with your finger in a rag. You need special brushes, special tools to clean those things out. And here I am. I had the carburetor looking all nice and neat on the outside, but on the inside, the carburetor was still filled with crud. And it needed someone with the ability to clean it for me. And Blake took that carburetor. He cleaned out all the crud inside of it. We put it on the lawnmower. Sure enough, fired right back up. And I thought to myself, you know, isn't that just like what God says about the human heart? You know, all of us have our hearts that are infected with the spiritual crud. It keeps us from experiencing life with the Lord, a relationship with the Lord, life to the full, walking with Christ. And we can't clean that junk out on our own. Only Jesus has the ability to get in there and dig in and clean out all the mess in our hearts. And he'll do that for you if you'll put your trust in him. But the thing is, you have to come to Jesus with a humbled heart, a humbled attitude. See, Romans 5.8, the good news of Christianity says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, he wasn't worried about all the external stuff. He knew we couldn't ever do enough of the external stuff to make ourselves worthy. He knew that the junk on the inside is what ultimately kept us separated from him. But he loved us so much that he was willing to come and lay down his life for us so that he could clean our hearts from the inside out and bring us into a new relationship with him. And here's the key to humility, friends. The humility of an amazing faith understands this. True humility stems from seeing our insufficiency and Christ's all-sufficiency. And I'll tell you what, if you're living your life on a basis that says, well, you know what, I'm just going to do enough good stuff. And you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm a pretty good guy. And, you know, I've tried to take care of my family and I've had a good job and I've done all the right things, right? If that's your basis of your hope for an eternal life with God, friends, you're in big trouble. Because the Bible says there is crud on the inside that all your good deeds can never take care of. But when you recognize your insufficiency to take care of that on your own and you trust in Christ's all-sufficiency 
to take care of that for you? That's the humbled heart that Christ will honor, and he'll begin a transforming work in your life, making you a new creation. That's the kind of humility we see expressed in the life of our Gentile centurion today. The third quality of an amazing faith that we see in our passage is confident assurance. Confident assurance. Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. And Hebrews 11 verse 1 opens up with this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. And friends, the centurion in our passage displayed a confident assurance in his message to Jesus. He had confidence that Jesus could heal his servant. He had assurance that Jesus had the power and the authority to do that. In fact, he said to Jesus, look at Jesus, I know what it is to have authority. I'm a leader myself. I tell men to go and they go. I tell servants to come and they come. Jesus, I know what it is to have authority. You have authority. And he says, Jesus, all you need to do is say the word. Just say the word, Jesus, and I know your will will be done. Friends, that's confident assurance. That's the confident assurance of an amazing faith. When, when even when we don't see or understand all that's going on, to trust and hope that God has the power to do miracles. That he has the authority to do miracles. That's the confident assurance of an amazing faith. But here's the thing, I think we got to be honest about something. What happens when the miracle doesn't come? What happens when you've prayed with a confident assurance over and over again? And all it seems that you get on the other end is silence. God, I trust you. I know you have the power to change this, Lord. And yet all you get is silence. Friends, here's the thing. The confident assurance of an amazing faith recognizes God's sovereignty even when we may not get the answer we're seeking. Even when we don't get the miracle we've prayed for. Because confident assurance trusts that God is always faithful to his people. Hebrews 11, in verse 13, again, the hall of fame of faith, these great men and women who are lauded for their faith. Look at verse 13 says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance but they continued to live by faith. That's confident assurance, friends. Even when you don't receive the promise, you continue to walk in faith. Confident assurance trusts that God can and does still do miracles. But confident assurance also believes that God's plan is always better than what we perceive through our finite, limited perspective. And this is why confident assurance leads us to pray as Jesus instructed in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. Yeah, I'm going to pray for my miracle. I'm going to pray, God, for you to intervene in the trial that I'm facing. But at the end of the day, I'm going to pray with the confident assurance that your will be done. Because your will is always best. Pastor John Piper once said, 
God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Wow. Confident assurance, trust in God, even when we don't understand his plans and purposes. In 1974, a year before I was born, my dad was speaking in Liberia, West Africa. My dad was a Christian apologist and an evangelist, and he had been lined up to speak all over the country of Liberia in large crusades, soccer stadiums that seated 10,000, 20,000 people. Two days into his trip in Liberia, my dad became violently ill with dysentery and some kind of jungle infection he had gotten from drinking the water there. They took my dad to the hospital in Liberia. It was an American hospital run by uh, the Peace Corps. And my dad was sitting in this hospital bed saying, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, I came to Liberia to serve you. I came to speak the gospel. I came to 10,000 people tomorrow night, Lord, are going to be in that soccer stadium. What are you doing putting me in this hospital bed? There was a doctor at the hospital named Dr. Robert Patton. Dr. Patton wasn't a Christian, but he was there as a relief worker with the U.S. government. And he saw my dad and the condition he was in. And he said, you know, Ron, why don't you come stay at my family's home? You're going to need at least a week to recover from this. And you can come and stay with my family. Over the course of a week, as he recovered at Dr. Patton's home, my dad each night would get in long conversations with Dr. Patton about religion, about philosophy, about the gospel. After a few days, Dr. Patton prayed with my dad to receive Jesus Christ as a Savior. The next night, his wife prayed with my dad to receive Christ as her Savior. Their kids prayed with my dad to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. Six years later, in 1980, my dad got a letter in the mail from Dr. Patton. He said, Ron, I thought you'd like to know that my wife and I have decided to leave the mission field or to, to leave our hospital work, and we're going to go to seminary to train to become missionaries, to go on the mission field. I'll never forget, 20 years later, the year 2000, my dad received another letter in the mail. I'll never forget watching my dad weep as he read this very humbling letter. Dr. Patton said, Ron, I want you to know because the Lord allowed you to get sick in 1974. Our whole family became Christians. And today we have translated the entire Bible for the very first time into the language of this unreached people group in the jungles of Suriname, South America. See, friends, we don't always know what God is up to in our lives. We don't always understand his plans and purposes. But an amazing faith rests in the confident assurance that God is always good and God is always faithful. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Even when we don't understand, God knows. And the confident assurance of an amazing faith trusts in God's goodness and God's faithfulness, even when his purposes aren't clear to us. Friends, God is looking for people of amazing faith today. Our world needs people of amazing faith today now more than ever. We live in a world where people are so confused, so lost, so caught up in all kinds of spiritual confusion, chasing after empty promises and false idols, looking for hope, looking for meaning, looking for purpose. And God needs his people to rise up with an amazing faith that loves radically, 
that lives with a spirit of humility, recognizing that God is the source of our strength. He's where we find our sufficiency, not in our good deeds, not in our works. God needs people with not only radical love and spiritual humility, but people who will walk boldly with confident assurance, who display to the world that no matter what happens in our lives, we know God is good and he is faithful and we can always trust him. I'll tell you what, friends, when a person meets somebody with that kind of faith, that's powerful. That kind of faith is the kind of faith that made Jesus stop in his tracks and say, wow, I'm amazed. I haven't even found faith like this in Israel. May our heart's prayer be, God, raise us up as people of amazing faith. How do we cultivate an amazing faith? We need to draw near to Jesus. That's the way you do it. You can't do this on your own. But when you spend time with Jesus, when you walk with him, when you stay in his word, when you spend time in prayer, friends, the closer you get to Jesus, the more he will begin to cultivate this kind of amazing faith in your life. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, you're not going to do this on your own. We're not going to be a people of amazing faith through our own works and efforts and power. But when we trust Jesus and we draw close to Jesus, friends, he will cultivate the qualities of an amazing faith in our life. Let that be our prayer. Let that be the desire of our heart. Jesus, I just want to be close to you. Make me a man, make me a woman of amazing faith so that I can shine your truth to the world around me. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this illustration of amazing faith that we see in our Gentile centurion today. And God, I pray that we would be inspired, each one of us here, to seek to have that kind of faith in our own lives, Lord. And I pray, God, that we might recognize that the ability to do that, it, it only comes from you. May we draw close to you, Jesus. And as we draw close to you, Lord, as we abide in you, Lord, may these qualities become more and more evident in our lives. Radical love, spiritual humility, confident assurance. Lord, we just pray that you would use us as your people, a people of amazing faith, to testify to the world around us that there is a good and awesome God who can do miraculous things that these things aren't on our, on our doing, but they're all because of you. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and your faithfulness. Amen.